Let's just thank God that we live in a nation where we can worship freely. Thank you for allowing me to bring this up here. I had some throat problems in the first service, so try to keep my uh, voice lubricated a little bit. Well, I'm, I'm taking a break in our Mark series. We'll resume next week, God willing. Today, I'm going to talk about Lord Heal Our Land. So if you have your Bible, go to the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles. And we're going to start in chapter 7, verse 12. I heard a funny story about a Sunday school class of children, and the teacher asked the students, she said, what was the name of the very first man? And a little kid raised his hand and said, I know, I know, it was George Washington. <laughs> she said, no, the name of the first man was Adam. That kid said, well, I guess if you include foreigners. <laughs> that, that guy loved America. George Washington was our first president. And he loved God, feared God, and I'm going to be quoting him today. So this is a message about Lord heal our land. And, and some of you are probably already thinking, you know, I don't like political messages, so I don't want you to talk politics. I'm not going to talk politics. I despise politics. I don't like politics. You know, the word itself comes from two words, poly, meaning many, and ticks, blood-sucking pests. Instead, I want to talk about how the founders of our nation founded this country on biblical principles. Now, you always need to understand the context of a passage of Scripture. And in 2 Chronicles 7, Solomon has just finished building the temple and dedicating it to God. And then God appears to him and speaks to him. So if you have your Bible, 2 Chronicles 7, 12... I invite you to stand with me as we read this portion of the Word of God, if you're willing and able. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If I shut the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, he said, I can do any of those things. But he said, that can be prevented because verse 14 says, and my people... Who bear my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the founders of our nation who feared you, who, who believed the Bible, and who founded our nation on Christian principles. And Father, we've wandered far away from some of those principles, and so we're begging you today just as you spoke to Solomon, for you to come and heal our land. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, be seated. Now, those of you that know your Old Testament, you know that if you keep reading in 2 Chronicles 7, God says, here's the good thing that can happen. You know, you, you repent, turn from your sins, I'll heal your land. He says, but if you don't, if you worship other gods and you forget my word, he says, I'm going to make this city and this temple a joke. And we do know that about 400 years later, that's what happened to the nation of Israel, how they forsook God, uh, started worshiping idols, and the Babylonian Empire came in and absolutely destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed this temple that Solomon had dedicated. You know, our founding fathers had a vision, a dream of a totally new form of government. So this 56 men gathered from the different colonies in what we call the Continental Congress. 
And the document that they came up with, the preamble of it, which is, which is familiar to all of us, on July the 4th, 1776, they said something really profound. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. From this preamble to the Declaration of Independence, we can understand that the, those founders of our nation, they had three foundational beliefs that made our nation great, and that's why we're still great today. Here's foundational belief number one. America was founded on the belief that there are absolute truths. We hold these truths to be self-evident. There are some truths that are so real that you can't ignore them. But in our age, in the 21st century, in the postmodern age, post-Christian age in which we live, truth has become relative. Uh, people talk about, well, that may be your truth, but that's not my truth. And every time I hear somebody say there is no such thing as absolute truth, I think, well, you know what? You're making a statement of absolute truth, and you say there's no such thing as absolute truth. George Barner's research organization uh, polled a lot of Americans, and 67% of American adults say, say that there's no such thing as absolute truth. But when you go to the high school and you ask high school-age students, they said 92% of them said there is no such thing as absolute truth. So what are the truths that are absolute? Well, all men are created equal and are given by their creator certain rights. And from the very beginning, this Declaration of Independence was the second most important document for our founding fathers. But they also loved the Bible, read the Bible, and used the Bible. Because the number one most important document to our founding fathers was the Bible itself. And when you go read the primary documents of our founding fathers and the Federalist Papers, you find that the Bible is quoted more than any other source. There was a great chaplain of the Senate called Peter Marshall. And if you want to read a great biography, uh, read the one written by his wife called A Man Named Peter. But in one of his prayers... He emphasizes the importance of absolute truth. Here's his prayer. Lord Jesus, who art the way, the truth, and the life, hear us as we pray for the truth that will make us all free. Teach us that liberty is not only to be loved, but also to be lived. Liberty is too precious a thing to be buried in books. It costs too much to be hoarded. Help us to see that our liberty is not the right to do as we please, but the opportunity to please to do what is right. Now, when he was talking about the source of truth, he was talking about the Bible. You know, I'm, I'm a baby boomer generation, and maybe some of you, like me, you went to public school where there, posted on the wall of your classroom, there were the Ten Commandments. How many of you went to a school that had the Ten Commandments? Posted on the wall. Yes, all of you old folks like me. Why do you think we have such a violent culture today? Because at least, you know, my generation, there weren't mass shootings. I mean, guys parked their pickup trucks with guns in their rifle racks out in the parking lot 
and there were never any kind of public school or mass shootings. And today, as I've already said, there are more mass shootings this year in America than there are calendar days. And so we are such a violent culture. But when you take down the set of rules, absolute standards, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, we, we can't even be surprised why there is so much violence. You know, Ruth Graham Bell, or Ruth Bell Graham, who was the wife of Billy Graham, uh, she was talking one time about all the violence in America and about the abortion. Uh, and here's what she said. She said, if God doesn't judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we believe that there are absolute truths, and the Bible is that absolute truth that our founders believed in. Here's foundational truth number two. America was founded on the belief that the God of the Bible created us. Now, today, you know what our culture teaches? They, they, our culture teaches that we're just biological accidents, that we're just some kind of uh, result of some evolution. But four times in this Declaration of Independence, they made reference to our Creator, to our God. And when you study the history of this Continental Congress, you find that before they produced this document, the Declaration of Independence, they sent out a number of proclamations to all the people in the colonies, calling on them to pray and to fast for them as they were doing their work. In fact, there was one that they sent out on May 17, 1776. This is about 45 days before the Declaration of Independence. Here's what they said. We call on all people to fast, to pray, and to confess and bewail our manifold sins and transgressions, and by a sincere repentance and amendment of life, appease God's righteous displeasure, and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, obtain his pardon and his forgiveness. When's the last time you heard anything like that come out of Congress? And when you study how many of those proclamations they issued, they issued 30 of them. Over the years, 30 proclamations like that, most of them were longer and more involved. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, and all of them included Jesus Christ. And so they were calling upon the citizens of the colonies to pray and fast as they were developing this Declaration of Independence. One of my little quirky hobbies is I really love to study trivia about the United States presidents. Particularly, I love to study the inaugural speeches of all of our presidents. You know, the shortest inauguration speech that was ever given, it was George Washington's second inauguration speech. It was only lasted two minutes. He only spoke 135 words. The average inauguration speech is 40 minutes long. The longest inauguration speech was given in 1841 by President William Henry Harrison. He spoke outdoors in a blizzard without a hat or a scarf, 30 days later, he died of pneumonia from that speech. And John Tyler became the president, and he didn't give an inauguration speech. I don't blame him. <laughs> but the second shortest inauguration speech ever was FDR's fourth inauguration speech. No president will ever give a fourth inauguration speech. He was in poor health. It was toward the end of World War II. It was only three minutes long, and most of his speech actually was a prayer. So you ought to just Google FDR's fourth inauguration speech. It reads more like a sermon than a speech. 
Okay, shortest George Washington, second shortest FDR, third shortest inauguration speech. It was Abraham Lincoln's second speech. It's toward the end of the Civil War, and within six weeks, he would be dead. And he, he, he preached a sermon, basically. Now, if you go to Washington, D.C., look on the north wall of the Lincoln Memorial, because this entire speech that you can read in three and a half minutes, entire speech is engraved there. This is what it says. Both sides, meaning the North and the South, read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. He's quoting Jesus from Matthew 7, 1 there. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. That's another direct quote from Jesus of Matthew 18, 7. Shall we discern from him any departure from these divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continues until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's, that's the slaveries, 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and every drop of blood drawn from the lash shall be paid by another is drawn by the sword, as it was said 3,000 years ago, quoting the Old Testament book of Psalms. So it must be said now, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That's from Psalm 19.9. As I said, uh, in, in a little bit over a month, the war would be over. Six weeks later, Lincoln would be dead by an assassin's bullet. But this speech he gave is the most theologically deep and sound um, inaugural speech that any president has ever given. And so when we've had these kind of leaders in our country, we need to learn from them what, what they held dear. Now, George Washington was the first president. His first inauguration speech was not very long at all, but the very first thing he did in that speech was to pray. He prayed and asked God to bless this new nation. In fact, he said it would be the worst thing he could do not to pray as his first act as a president. But then toward the end of that first inauguration speech, he gives a warning, a warning that we should heed in 2022. He said, we ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious, that means favorable, smiles of heaven, that means God's smile, can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. Do you hear what he's saying? Right now we are obeying the rules of heaven and God is smiling on us. We just won the Revolutionary War. But in the future, if we ever give up these rules of order that heaven has given, we can't expect the blessings and the smile of God. Those are the beliefs of our forefathers. Our nation was founded on the belief that there are absolute truth, that we're created by the God of the Bible. And here's the final foundational truth. America was founded on the belief that God has given us our rights. 
We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain rights. God is the source of our liberty. It is God who gives us our rights. Now, the common belief today in America is, no, the government gives us our rights. And the problem with a lot of Americans today is this sense of entitlement. The government owes me. I, I demand my rights. I, I'll, I'll never forget during uh, Hurricane Katrina seeing somebody on television say, I demand my FEMA rights. Well, wait a minute. Rights are a gift from God. They don't, they don't come from the government. Let me just say this. If the government gives you your rights, the government can take away those rights. But if it is God who gives you your rights, the government can never take away your rights. And liberty is a gift from God. Our founding fathers believed that. Now, if you go to Washington again, I encourage you to go to the Jefferson Memorial. And there on the northeast portico, here's a couple of quotes from Thomas Jefferson. God, who gave us life, gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secured when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Now go back in your mind to those first settlers that came here to our shores. Uh, they were people who were seeking religious freedom, including the first pilgrims on the Mayflower. But there was a second wave of English settlers who came over uh, in 1630. And one of them was John Winthrop, who later became the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And here's what he wrote about America. He said, we shall be a city set on a hill and all the eyes of the world will be on us as a model of Christian charity. Here's what John Winthrop said. This, this new nation where people are coming for religious freedom, we're going to be a shining light, a city set on a hill to all the other nations of the world. And of course, he's referring to what Jesus said, a city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. And while I think it was true for many decades, Many, many years that America was that bright, shining city on a hill, I'm afraid our light has gone out. And we've lost our moral integrity in this nation because the Bible says in Psalm 917, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Donald Wildman is the president of the American Federation for Decency, and he says this, while America began with Christian ideals, the truth is that we are anything but a Christian nation now. Our behavior as a nation makes a mockery of Christianity. We lead the world in every abomination known to man. Abortion, alcoholism, drug addiction, gambling, divorce, child abuse, violent crime, and pornography. Worse yet, we export our violence and immorality to other countries through our sleazy movies and TV programs. We have become the moral polluter of planet Earth. That, that's really how America is known around the world these days, by the music and the movies and the immorality that they see in America today. Talking about presidents, I, I don't mind telling you, my very favorite president was Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan had this to say about America. America is great because America is good, meaning morally good. 
If America ever ceases to be good, we will cease to be great. If we ever forget that we are one nation under God, we will be a nation gone under. So although we have problems in America today, I still think this is the greatest nation on the earth. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I think it's the greatest nation in the history of all the nations of this planet. And as I've traveled the world, and I've done a good bit of that, I found that nations and cultures in other areas of the world, they, they are envious of the freedoms that we enjoy. They're, they are jealous uh, of the freedom that we enjoy. Uh, indication of that is that we, we had a song sung this morning, America the Beautiful. Studies have shown that most foreign nations believe that America the Beautiful is our national anthem, not the Star Spangled Banner. For instance, in 1972, when President Richard Nixon went to China, so he was like the first president to ever go to China, the choir sang, not the Star Spangled Banner, they sang America the Beautiful. And I have a story about this from my past that is always a, a great memory for me. When I was pastor over in Tyler uh, in the early 90s when the Iron Curtain fell, we started doing work, sending mission teams over to the Crimea on the Black Sea, primarily in Yalta and Simferopol and those areas. And so after several different kind of trips, I, got, I had the idea, let's take a choir, an American choir, and so we practiced for more than a year, put together an American choir, and we would sing uh, patriotic songs, we'd sing Christian songs. We even learned phonetically to sing some Russian songs. So, and so we rented out the concert hall in Yalta, which was a huge building. It was seated over 3,000 people. So here we are. We, we, we came in the stage door. We're on the stage, and we've been rehearsing. And then we got together and we prayed, and uh, I kept looking at my watch. It was supposed to start at 7 o'clock, and it's getting close to 7 o'clock, and I look out there, and there's only about half a dozen people. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I have to really miss, miss God on this. I thought this would work because we had posters, and there had been posters all over Yalta for uh, two, three weeks before with a picture of this American choir, and nobody came. I'm thinking, Lord, I have missed your voice we've wasted all your money to get this group over here and all the time and effort and i just really was feeling bad when all of a sudden one of the russian pastors named pavel which is paul in russian he comes running down the aisle and he says pastor dykes pastor dykes that's what they call me please may we open the door now i said yeah pavel open the door what I didn't know is that on that side of the building that faced the main street, people had been lined up for two hours to get in. And when they opened the door, they literally ran in. And folks, these weren't Baptists. They didn't start in the back row. They went all the way to the front rows. They filled the front end fast. And within five minutes, the place was packed with standing room only. And so we did our concert. And, and then I, I preached the gospel. And I'm using a girl by the name of Natasha, who was a teacher at an English school in Odessa, Ukraine, and she was not a Christian, and I'm preaching the gospel. She's translating me preaching the gospel. And I notice that as I'm getting through this presentation, there's just tears streaming down her eyes, and I find out later that she was not a Christian, and as she was translating what I was saying, she gave her heart to Jesus Christ while she was translating the gospel that I was sharing with everybody 
So later she came to the United States and went over to Howard Payne and studied there for a while and taught there for a while. But I gave the invitation. And 3,000 people there. And I, I, as simply as I knew how, I said, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ and become a follower of Jesus, this is after 70 years of communism, atheistic communism. I want you to stand to your feet. And over half the crowd stood to their feet. And I, I said, no, no, sit back down. You didn't understand me. Because I thought they didn't. And so I made sure she translated exactly. Are you ready to live the rest of your life for Jesus Christ? Stand up. And so, yeah, about 2,000 of them stood up. We kept records of that week and all the concerts and things we did. Over 4,200 people signed a card saying they were giving their lives to Jesus Christ. We gave away over 10,000 Russian New Testaments. But here's the point of the story. We get to the last song. And we're going to sing America the Beautiful. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies. And as soon as we start singing it, they all stand at their feet because they think it's our national anthem. And they didn't have a national anthem, but they knew that one. You know how we knew they knew that one? Because when we came to the chorus, America, America, God shed his grace on, they all started singing every word of the chorus. They knew it. They loved the freedom that we had so much that they could all sing the chorus of America the Beautiful. It's a good thing they could because we were all up here bawling our eyes out when they did that, and we, we couldn't sing it, and, and so they were. So what, what a lesson that taught us that night, that other nations of the world are so jealous of our freedom that they love, even love that song, America the Beautiful. Thank God that we live in a nation where we can worship freely. The greatest freedom we have is not freedom from tyranny. The greatest freedom we have is freedom from sin. The liberty that comes from accepting Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And if you're here in this room or watching on live stream and you haven't done that yet, I'd ask you to bow your head right now and just allow me to lead you in a prayer that will allow you to put faith in Jesus Christ. You can just pray this prayer after me silently but sincerely. Dear God, I admit I am a sinner. I can never be good enough to earn heaven. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in, the pl in my place. Jesus, thank you for taking the penalty for my sin upon yourself on the cross. Jesus, right now, please come and enter my life and take control. I surrender all I am and all I have to you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into my heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.